from KDNK Community Access Radio in Carbondale, Colorado in the United States. This is program number 14 of the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. When blind people go places, we don't experience things like our sighted friends. We don't see beautiful mountains or romantic sunsets. The goal of this program is to identify and even create experiences that are more meaningful to us and our sighted traveling companions. Frequently, as people lose their eyesight, they become more and more isolated. The tactile traveler hopes to empower people not only to go literally around the world, but around the block to more meaningful experiences in their lives. Blind ranges from people who are visually impaired, and glasses and contact lenses no longer allows them to lead a normal life. To people like me, who are totally blind. To sighted parents who have a blind child, to blind parents who have sighted children. And people of all ages, interests, and physical abilities. On today's program, we'll find out what all that personal protective equipment all our medical providers wear looks like. A tip for preventing you from leaving things out of your suitcase. How to keep track of your credit card when it's out of your wallet or purse. Making long trips on Amtrak more pleasant. And we'll take a trip to democracy. 41-year-old party Gill, who is blind with the exception of light perception in one eye, lives in London. But for about a month last year, he was living in hospitals. He had COVID-19. I did. So uh, in March, at the height of the pandemic in uh, the UK, I started to get symptoms of a dry cough, a constant cold shiver, and my fever began to get worse, up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is quite high. In the UK on the 23rd of March, I was shielding, and it was very difficult with the, uh, the symptoms. I shrugged it no. off for a few days, but as they got worse, my struggle to breathe and the fever got very high. I called the emergency services and was taken into hospital. I spent a total of four weeks in two different hospitals. The first two weeks was to treat the COVID. I came out for a week, then I had to return back in for two weeks for some post-viral surgery because of complications. In the hospital, Party was experiencing something. For many of us with no functional vision, we don't quite understand. What all that personal protective equipment our medical providers wear looks like. My name is Beth Weeks, and my uh, title is Emergency Preparedness Program Manager at University of Colorado Hospital. Beth Weeks is very involved with what kind of personal protection equipment her staff wears. She has graciously offered to help us visualize with all that personal protective equipment our doctors, nurses, and all kinds of medical professionals are wearing to protect them from us 
and us from them. So their baseline personal protective equipment or PPE that all the healthcare workers are wearing right now, uh, everyone is wearing a mask and there are two different types of masks. The first is, is called a procedure mask and it's sort of a thick material uh, that goes you know, right over the mouth and is, uh, protects us from droplet spray. So it just covers the nose and the mouth, but it's not a tight seal. That would be similar to masks we wear, but maybe better. Exactly. So what the community is wearing most commonly are cloth masks. And cloth masks are good holding your own droplet. They're not as good at protecting you from other people. So these are medical grade masks that have multiple layers to them uh, that have different protective qualities and um, really the key there with these the, the baseline masks is that they protect from splashes and drops. The sort of next step up is an N95 mask. Uh, N95, the big difference there is that it's a, it's a tight-fitting seal. So these are um, meant to protect us from airborne particles. Airborne particles are really, really tiny particles that stay suspended in the air, and they can be sucked down into your lungs. So these re- require a tight seal around the nose and under the chin. The material is just a little bit thicker and sturdier typically. Um, and the person who's wearing an N95 may have more of a muffled voice because of that, that seal and the thicker material. Next are face shields. We do wear face shields when we are wearing either a procedure mask or an N95. We wear a face shield as well. If the patient is suspected to have COVID or may have COVID, and oftentimes staff wear them with all patient interactions. So that face shield goes, it typically has a band that goes around the forehead, around the back of the head, and then has that plastic covering that, that drapes down in front of the eyes and masks. So it covers your eyes and your mask just to help protect from any splashes again. It is plastic. A little bit flexible, but fairly sturdy material. They do have a curve to them. The part that goes against the forehead typically has some foam, which helps keep it off of the face a little bit. So it typically has a couple inches of foam. Uh, So it sits forward on the face and then goes straight down and sort of curves around the face. And there, the, the actual surface area of them is probably eight by eight inches and curves around a little bit. There are situations in which the staff sometimes wears something that even looks like the top half of a spacesuit. Um, called a papper, which is the sort of next level of respiratory protection where there's a full covering hood and it's powered. The uh, papper is a powered air purifying respirator. So it has a motor attached to it and they wear the motor on their back. Pretty hard for the healthcare worker to hear in and because of the sound of the motor and the blowing air. But they're, they're wearing a motor on their back and then a, a sort of plasticky hood over their face and top of their head. There's a couple different designs. The ones that have the most coverage have a shroud that covers the shoulders as well. So it completely covers their head and uh, their upper shoulders. And then they will have a gown on um, covering 
the covering more of their bodies kind that we use most commonly at my hospital, University of Colorado Hospital, just covers the top of the head and the face and leaves the ears and the neck and the shoulders uh, uncovered. The main goal of this is, is to protect our respiratory system. So exposed skin with these is not a concern. Beth Weeks says they'll even wear special masks for our deaf and deaf-blind listeners who can see well enough to read lips. People that rely on lip reading uh, to help supplement their understanding, it's, it's very tricky when people are wearing masks. Obviously, you can't lip read. Poppers that I mentioned where you can still see the person's face when they're talking, or they have some see-through masks. That are, that are possible. So if you're hearing impaired and you uh, use lip reading to supplement your understanding, definitely ask. Back in London, Party Gill is recovering. I'm doing better several months on, but uh, it's been quite uh, odd. I regained really well. I, uh, when I went back in for some post-viral surgery because of complications around my throat, I recovered well. But I've seen the virus and my experience as a turning point. It's it's really made me appreciate life more, better, and family, and the littlest things. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Leaving things out of your suitcase when you pack for a trip or when you pack your suitcase to go home or to the next leg of your trip can be a hassle for everyone. But it can be especially easy to do if you're blind. Jason Struther has a suggestion you might find useful. We usually pack our suitcases on a bed or other flat surfaces, and in the process, we leave things outside the suitcase, we move things around, we transfer items from one suitcase to another. They go all over the place. And so, sometimes it's easy to lose track of where everything went. An easy way to make sure that you've packed everything is to use the free app Be My Eyes. When you tap on this app, an excited volunteer somewhere in the world who speaks your language will use the camera on your phone to look around the entire room to make sure that everything that needs to be in the suitcase is in or nearby. While you're at it, have the agent check out the floor as well as underneath your suitcase. And if you're staying in a hotel, go the extra step or maybe several extra steps. Ask the Be My Eyes volunteer to check out the bathroom, the closet, or inside drawers to make sure you're not forgetting a single thing. You can also use Ira to help you pack, but that service is going to cost you. Thank you, Jason. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. One night before I went blind, after we returned to our hotel, right after dinner in Jerusalem, I realized I didn't have my credit card. So I ran the eight blocks back to the restaurant, where I found the maitre d' and told him that I never got my credit card back, and that guy over there was my waiter. He called him over and said this man never got his credit card back. The server reached into his shirt pocket and pulled out a handful of credit cards that he had been stealing that evening and gave me back mine. 
In the meantime, I've figured out a way to make sure you always get your credit card back. When you take your credit card out of your wallet or purse to pay a bill, keep your wallet or purse in your hand until you get that card back and you put it back where it belongs. This guy probably did something to distract us so that we wouldn't notice that he didn't return the card. But frequently, well-meaning servers put your card back on the table where we'll never see it. Either way, if you're holding your wallet or purse in your hand, you'll notice that you never got it back. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. One of the nice things about Amtrak, America's National Railroad Service, is that they have restrooms so you can go when you're on the go. Lydia Eckerd has a tip that might make your trip more fun. Superliners are the two-level cars Amtrak uses on its longest train routes. Trains you may be riding on for several nights. All of the cars have a number of restrooms, but there is a big difference between the restrooms that many passengers, both blind and sighted, never realized. By big, I mean the size. Most of the restrooms are tiny and cramped, like those on airplanes, but they also have two large restrooms. One facing the restrooms, the first one on your right, a handicapped one with lots of room to manipulate a wheelchair. Across from the handicapped restroom is a dressing room. It's the first door on your left. It's more than twice as large as a conventional lavatory. And it has a long bench you could sit on to change clothes. And it has a sink where you could fresh up and even wash your hair. And brush your teeth. And there's even a space for a guide or service dog. And it has a folding hook that is perfect for hanging your white cane to keep it out of the way. If you go to the end of the hall by the restrooms, there'll be a door that will say lounge. If the car hasn't been remodeled recently, it may say woman's lounge. In addition to another airline-style restroom, on its right side, it has a great long table for putting in changing or cleaning contact lenses. There's no similar place in a sleeper car. So if you wear contacts, might be worth a trip to a coach car to work on your contact lenses. Thank you, Lydia. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low-vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. On November 3rd, the tactile traveler Simon Bonifant did something he never did before. I, I participated in voting this year as I am 18 years old. 
and I had a very good experience. Even though he never voted before, it doesn't mean he hasn't been politically active. He's been going from his home in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to Washington, D.C., where he literally has been lobbying Congress for seven years. I've been a strong member of the National Federation of the Blind. I've been doing their Washington seminar advocacy since 2013. So I was very young. So I've been doing it for many years. Most of the laws benefiting us are the result of blind people working with their legislators. But you don't have to go all the way to Washington, D.C., to help shape the way your elected officials shape your life. That was Scott Labar, president of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado, before COVID-19 last year, explaining the blind residents of his state how to speak to their state senators and representatives before they went off to meet them. This is our annual State Day at the Capitol, where we visit with all members of the Colorado General Assembly, both uh, the members of the House of Representatives and members of the Colorado Senate. The purpose is to educate them on the issues that are important to us and to tell them what they can do to make life better and more independent for the blind of Colorado. But do they care? Yes, they do absolutely care. We've been doing this uh, well, we've been coming up to the Capitol for as long as we've been an organization. We were founded in 1955, but we've been doing this consistently since the mid-1990s. And every year they expect us, they listen to us, and they defer to us on issues pertaining to blind people and people with disabilities. We have a great deal of influence here, and it's especially true because of the nature of our General Assembly. They are on term limits. There isn't a lot of necessarily institutional knowledge here, so they really do rely on us to educate them about what's going on for blind people. Simon Bonifant says his federal representatives have been equally receptive. Yeah, I, I really enjoy doing that and talk with my legislators. I think that's really activism at work. Uh, this is really our part as citizens that we can do. It's taking our frustrations, taking our complaints, and putting them into action, especially for a disability community. And we have had a very, very, very good responses from, from our congressmen and senators. Uh, we have a lot of co-sponsors on bills and a lot of bills that are being drafted in the Senate and the House. And a lot of the congressmen and senators remember us from, from year to year. So we're very well received down in Washington. After graduating from the Colorado Center for the Blind and before becoming manager of the residential part of the residential program, Vicki Hendrick was a legislative aide to a Colorado Republican representative. Representative Wilson loved to meet with the people that come by, uh, the constituents from the public, the general public. Uh, they, he always wanted to meet with them and hear what they had to say and was very interested in what they were interested in. If you don't call, if you don't reach out to your legislator or your representatives, they don't really know how you feel. If you want to be the most effective in lobbying for blind issues, go during your state's National Federation of the Blind, state legislative days, or to the National Seminar. 
they're very structured and talk to legislators about specific laws. And those laws are the result of state and national resolutions passed by the NFB. And you can become involved in forming those resolutions. For more information and to see if those legislative visits will be in person or digital this year, call the National Federation of the Blind in Baltimore, Maryland, or go to nfb.org. Advocating for blind issues and things that are important to us isn't limited to the United States. George Dutch is a career consultant in Ottawa, Canada in private practice. He had a recent college graduate in political science with no political contacts asked to help him find a job in politics. Every year around in December, in the early weeks of December, most members of Parliament will hold open Christmas parties uh, in their offices on Parliament Hill, uh, the site of our House of Commons, as well as in their constituency offices back in the communities where they were elected. And the parties on Parliament Hill are open to anybody. They're quite open events. So I encouraged my client to target three or four members of parliament that he would like to work for and go to their Christmas parties. He, he didn't even need an invite or anything. He just looked on the parliamentary calendar to see when the members that he had targeted were holding their Christmas parties, because again, this is public information. They're using public doc- dollars to hold these parties. So all of that information is uh, available uh, online. So he identified when the parties were, when they were scheduled and he uh, went to uh, two parties and of course, at Christmas, people are much more open and amenable to conversation, and they're usually much more, they divulge a lot more. They're more relaxed. Uh, they're in a convivial state of mind, so to speak. And of course, alcohol you know, tends to lubricate people's lips a little bit. So he asked these kind of questions, and in the office of one member of parliament, he found out quite a bit about what was going on in that office, and that there was an opening coming up, because that member of parliament was going to be made a minister in the coming year and would have a bigger budget and would hire more people. George's client got a job as a legislative aide to a member of parliament for three years and has since gone on to be executive director for several industrial professional organizations and has become one of the most influential lobbyists in Canada. It's all about relationships. And so uh, they should invest considerable time and energy in building relationships, especially uh, with the groups of people that they want to influence or persuade towards a certain uh, point of view or towards a certain position. For structured lobbying for the blind in Canada, contact the Canadian National Institute for the Blind and ask for their advocacy department. They advocate for blind people at all levels, including at the provincial and national level. And they can teach you how to advocate for yourself. Why, it's my talking scale, reminding us that we'd like you to weigh in on how we're doing. Please let us know by sending an email to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. We spell traveler the American way with one L. We'd also like to hear your story ideas from all over the world. 
send us an email with story ideas in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. If you'd like to help underwrite this program, please send us an email with underwriting in the subject line to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. Transcripts of this program are available for our deaf listeners by searching The Tactile Traveler in any search engine. This program is also being broadcast on the Audio Information Network of Colorado and in additional states. It's also available by typing The Tactile Traveler into any search engine and is available wherever you get podcasts, and by asking your smart speaker to play the podcast, The Tactile Traveler. We'd like to thank the following organizations and people who help make this program possible. Be My Eyes Microsoft Accessibility Tech Support, Apple Accessibility Tech Support, Karen McArthur, Lorraine Hutchinson, Debbie O'Leary, Sarah Williams, Sophia Williams, Suzanne Paul, Mark McGreary, Paula Frome, Hannah Hunt Moeller, Lucas Turner, and Raleigh Burley. This has been program number 14 of the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. This has been a production of KDNK Community Access Radio, Carbondale, Colorado.